Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet cloak on him and twisted thorns into a crown and put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Then kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on his head. When they had finished mocking him, they stripped the cloak from him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. On the way out, they came across a Cyrenian man named Simon and they compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but having tasted it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments by casting lots. They sat there guarding him, and they placed above his head an inscription declaring the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then they crucified with him two terrorists, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by ridiculed him, shaking their heads and saying, you're the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The chief priests, scribes and elders similarly mocked him saying, he saved others, but he is not able to save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He has trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the terrorists crucified alongside him did the same, reviling him. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? And some of those standing there said, he calls Elijah. And immediately one of them ran, took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed for him to drink. But others said, wait, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus, again crying out with a loud voice, surrendered his spirit. The veil of the temple was split in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of those saints who had been asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and were manifested to many. The centurion and those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the signs and what had happened and were greatly afraid, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we remember those things that happened so long ago and which so dramatically impact every life in this room and indeed the whole of existence. We pray that you might open our eyes to see what you would have us see in your word. Would you teach us? Would you rebuke us and correct us? Would you train us in righteousness? Would you encourage us? For all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Like uh, many of you, um, I had a late night on Monday night uh, watching the funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. If you watched it, I'm sure you'll agree it was a very moving occasion. It allowed the British nation, uh, the Commonwealth and the world 
to fare well someone who has been a model of devotion and service. It has been carefully choreographed to reinforce the importance and the dignity of the one who died. The crown, the orb, the scepter given to her at her coronation almost 70 years ago, placed carefully upon her coffin and carried from Westminster Hall to the Abbey and from the Abbey to the chapel at Windsor. The ceremonial guards, the gun carriage, the dignitaries from countries all around the world gathered in one place to acknowledge the significance of this woman and the significance of her death. And the size of the crowds that lined the streets, not to mention the long, long line of those who'd waited to view her lying in state, and many of whom dissolved into tears when they saw her coffin, led one commentator after another to reflect, look how much they loved her. What a contrast with the events we just read about in that passage from Matthew 27. There was not much solemn dignity that day. Not much recognition that this man and his death matters more than any other in the entirety of universal history. Nothing but a demonstration of, as one man put it, the depths of irrational human depravity. But the thing to grasp in the midst of this is not how much they loved him because they didn't, but rather how much he loved them and us. As the king of glory, a glory that makes our late queen's glory pale into insignificance, as the king of glory undergoes such humiliation, such violence, and the full force of what human wickedness deserves, though he is entirely and transparently the only innocent one, we need to remember that at each point there is a deliberate choice to bear all this in order to save us. Look how much he loved us. Perhaps the most astonishing thing in this entire passage is the way the actual crucifixion of Jesus is presented. We hear of it almost in passing in verse 35. Those of you looking on in your Greek New Testaments will see that it's not even the main verb of the sentence. Just three words, having crucified him. And then it goes on to concentrate on yet another humiliation anticipated in the Old Testament. They divided his garments by casting lots. We know because the rest of the New Testament makes clear that Jesus' death is extraordinarily significant. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Paul will list, as the first of the things of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. But we know, as Jane has told us, that crucifixion was painful, degrading, for Jews, a clear and definite sign that you were cursed in line with Deuteronomy 21. So why does Matthew, in his distinctive account of the ministry of Jesus, pass over the actual deed so very quickly? What is it that Matthew, and God himself through Matthew, wants us to notice? Not at all to diminish the significance of Jesus' death, but to help us understand that significance all the better. Well, I want to suggest three things. This is the reality foreshadowed in the Old Testament this is God at work at the very point he seems most absent. And this is the pivot on which the universe turns. And at each of those three points, I want to say, look how much he loved us. 
So first, this is the reality foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Matthew's gospel, perhaps more than the others, is preoccupied with showing the way Jesus fulfills the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. I hope you've seen that as we worked our way through Matthew's gospel. Matthew is convinced that it's important for us to know that everything Jesus taught and everything Jesus did is anchored deeply in the Old Testament. This is not plan B, nor God's hand being forced by things we have done or discovered, nor some kind of improvisation or improvement required by new knowledge. This is what God has had in mind all along. If we are to live in perfect relationship with the God who made us forever, the God who is love but who is also light, merciful and also righteous, this is what is necessary. That's why Matthew's Gospel begins with a genealogy. That's why the Old Testament is quoted so many times explicitly in this Gospel. It's why Jesus can ask his opponents, haven't you read? Or direct them to parts of the Old Testament with the words, it is written. This is where the whole Old Testament, the entire history of Israel, and God's every expression of himself and his purpose has been heading. And that's why there's such irony in the mockery that is strewn right across this passage. The soldiers mockingly dress him up as a king and bow before him. And the crown they make is a crown of thorns, adding new wounds to those he'd already sustained through the public whipping that he had received before Pilate handed him over. And the reed put in his hand as a mockery of a scepter is used to beat him, not as a sign of his glory and majesty. But he is a king. The King of Kings, the beloved Son of the Father to whom he has given all rule and authority. The soldiers did not know it. They did not want to know it. They were going to show how ridiculous it was to consider him a king. And so they mocked him. Just as Psalm 89 and Isaiah 50 had said would happen. Just as Jesus himself had said it would happen in Matthew 20. The mockery, the degrading humiliating treatment from creatures he had come to save did not catch him by surprise. He knew that what they were doing was not at all about justice, but about the most aggressive rejection of his kingship, of God's kingship. And he had to go down this route in order to save us, to stare in the face, right up close, the rejection of God and his kingship in order to atone for that rejection of God and his kingship. And they mocked him when they brought him to the place of execution, offering him something undrinkable in a mock show of compassion. Psalm 69 had said that would happen. When they stripped him and gambled for his clothes, Psalm 22 had said that would happen. And when they strung him up between two terrorists, enemies of the state and the people, and Isaiah 53 had said that would happen. He was numbered with the transgressors. And then that trilogy of abuse from the passers-by, from the chief priests, scribes and elders, from the terrorists crucified with him, both of them at first, that mockery was no surprise. It was part of the price of our redemption. 
The religious leaders had not just wanted him dead, but wanted him dead by crucifixion. That's why they'd taken him to the Romans. That would be a demonstration he was cursed, just as Deuteronomy 21 had said. But the irony in their inciting the crowd to demand his crucifixion was that it was by bearing the curse and becoming the cursed one that he released all of us from the curse. At every point, it is clear that this is the plan from the beginning. God had carefully arranged it all so that this salvation would be complete, entire, exhausting every demand that could be made against us, dealing decisively with his own righteous judgment on sin so that we might be set free. Reflect on how every thread comes together at this point. Not thrown together at the last minute, not a contingency plan. The reality foreshadowed right through the Old Testament, the price he paid and he knew he had to pay. And this morning, once again, look how much he loved us. Secondly, this is God at work at the very point he seems most absent. The most terrifying thing about the events of that day is that for most of it, God seemed absent. God does not intervene. When the son he loves and whom he is named as king is brutalised by Pilate and his thugs, he does not strike them down when they laugh at the idea he could be king. When so physically weak as a result of their mistreatment, he is not able to carry the cross they press upon him, and so they have to coerce a bystander to carry it for him, God does not step in and stop it. When his enemies are crowing about their triumph, laugh at him and once more demand a sign from him, right here, right now, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. There is no thunderbolt to strike them down. As one indignity and humiliation is piled upon another, in these verses there is no answer from the heavens. Where is God in all of this? And Jesus gives voice to that complaint, taking the words of Psalm 22 on his lips as he hangs on the cross. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? And I don't think we should evacuate these words of their power by rushing too quickly to the end of the psalm, Psalm 22, where the Messiah is delivered. It did really look as if Jesus had been abandoned in those hours. No miracle had been given. Sure, there was darkness, but that just heightened the sense that evil had won and that light was vanishing from the world. He was still the beloved son, this was a work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, undivided. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. But at that moment, as he bore the sins of the world, as he became the cursed one to free us from the curse, when he knew in his own earthly experience the terrifying reality of judgment, the glorious triumph of God seemed hidden. The sky was black. The adversaries were shouting their abuse. Death was approaching. And where are you, God? Christians through the ages have often spoken of the hiddenness of God. We know, at least in theory, that God remains sovereign in this world, that nothing is outside of his control. But there are times when it just doesn't look like it. When there 
thing you've been praying for for so long still seems as far away as it has ever been. That family member hardened to the gospel. That disease still crippling the body of a loved one or perhaps your own. That struggle against temptation that seems as hard as it has always been. That relationship still strained. The apparent victory of unbelief and immorality and the quickening decline of the churches and their witness. Where is God in all of this? I cannot see what he is doing. My God, my God, why did you forsake me? Why have you forsaken us? And that's what you see in these verses, isn't it? The hiddenness of God. As the hours of darkness advance, the soldiers still sitting there, the chief priests and their hangers-on still smug and gloating, the women standing at a distance, and three men gasping for breath from their crosses. It was hard to see God's good, loving, purposeful hand in those events. And we don't get a resolution of that tension and distress in this passage. We won't be able to look at these events and see that God was indeed powerfully at work until after the stone is rolled away and Jesus stands before his disciples as the risen one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Even when he seems hidden, when we cannot make sense of the delay, when we cannot see the change we longed for, he is still powerfully at work. And because we see the cross in the light of the resurrection, we have confidence to look at every dark moment and still say, God has not abandoned me. He is still powerfully at work. And his purposes have not been derailed or delayed, not even for a moment. A famous theologian once said, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God through suffering and the cross. Luther, the Heidelberg Disputation. Know that in the darkness of those moments on the 15th of Nisan, AD 30, when Jesus cried out from the cross, God was most powerfully at work, dealing decisively with those things that threaten us most. But it was hidden. Look how much he loved us. But the third thing that becomes clear as we move through this passage is that what happened then and there is the pivot on which the universe turns. Because at the moment of Jesus' death, three remarkable things happen. The first is that the veil of the temple is split from top to bottom. I don't think those who saw it thought, terrific, now we can go in. The veil that's kept us out. Only the priest could go in, but now it's open to all of us. No, I think those who saw it would have been horrified. What does this mean? They would have been asking, what are we to make of this? Now, something much more profound happened at that moment. It was an indication that the age of the temple was over. This was no longer the place of access to God. Access to God is only through Jesus. 
and the attempt to go on as if he had not lived and taught and died and in three days' time risen was empty foolishness. Everything with respect to God hinges on Jesus. His death changes everything. And though it will take time for that to be realised, to realise that the great and final sacrifice, the, the sacrifice every other sacrifice had been pointing towards, has been made, that there is no other sacrifice than Jesus' death on the cross, no other priest but Jesus himself, it will take time to realise all that. But the magnificent sign of that monumental change was given at that moment. From top to bottom, it is the work of God. This is no longer the place where you meet God. God is met in Jesus. The great system of sacrifices and temple worship gave way in reality, if not yet in practice, at that moment when the veil was torn from top to bottom. The second of these remarkable three things is the shaking of the earth, the splitting of the rocks and the opening of the tombs. Death is reversed. There is a momentary taster of what will happen in three days' time and in full on the last day. The Old Testament looked forward to a great resurrection. That was the hope of pious Jews like Lazarus' sisters. Daniel 12 spoke of a resurrection when many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. David wrote of how the Lord will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let his Holy One see corruption. And Job prophesied, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And now for just a moment, as an indication of how this great reality has arrived in the crucified and one who's about to rise again, the firstborn from the dead, this little momentary taster is given. And the third remarkable thing is the testimony of the centurion. You might remember that back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 2, when the Jewish leader of the day sought to destroy Jesus, it was the witness of outsiders, the Gentiles from the east, who testified to his identity as the long-promised king, and they worshipped him. He is the one born king of the Jews, they said. And now at the other end of the gospel, after the mockery and lies of the Jewish leaders, after the spineless corruption of the Gentile leader, it is a Gentile centurion who declares, truly this was the Son of God. How much knowledge went with that confession, we may never know, but we who read this gospel hear his testimony and rejoice that at just this moment, when the devil had done his worst, it was declared by the most unlikely source that the one so mistreated was indeed the Son of God. The tearing of the curtain the opening of the tombs, the testimony of the centurion, they combine to lead us to this point, that something extraordinarily significant has just happened, something that cannot be dismissed as merely ordinary. That man, no doubt, had seen many, many deaths, but he knew this one was different. The scale of what happened that day exceeds anything you and I can imagine. It stretches back to eternity, 
the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It stretches forward into eternity. In the center of the new heaven and the new earth is the lamb standing as if slain. This must happen. Each detail and on the wonderful broad canvas and it points us to these events as the pivot on which the universe turns. Faced with the cross of Christ, nothing can stay the same. You and I cannot hear of what happened that day and simply say, let's move on. For look how much he loved us. Two deaths. One uh, we've been witness to over the past two weeks and one recorded for us in this section of Matthew's Gospel, but only one of those can save us. And the Queen herself knew it. Her trust was, she testified again and again, in the Saviour who had come to rescue her. I'm convinced that it was right and proper to honour the Queen's long reign and extraordinary service, but like her, our attention is properly drawn to the one who endured the humiliation and mockery, the abuse and derision, in order to save us. This is the one eternal plan, promised and anticipated in the Old Testament. God powerfully at work, even in the darkness, when this is not easily seen, the pivot on which the universe turns. Look how much he loved us. Will you pray with me? Father, we could never deserve what you have done for us in Jesus. As we have looked again this morning and seen again the scale, the depth, the richness of what you have done because you have loved us, of what he endured because he loved us, of what your spirit testifies to in your word because he loves us. We pray, Father, that you might grant to us to love in return and to live a faithful life of discipleship and take the message of his death and resurrection to the world. For this we ask in Jesus' name.